Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, former Miss Florida Seminole and Miss Indian World, Cheyenne Kippenberger. You may not have heard Seminole and Miccosukee history or really know anything about our people, and that's all right. But now that it is on your radar, you all have an obligation and a responsibility to go and seek out and to learn those things. We'll discuss the Florida Negro Farm Cooperative Extension Service. Both farm and home extension agents served as rural social workers. And seven decades later, the Groveland Four are finally exonerated. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Diane Kippenberger is a member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Her hometown is the Hollywood Reservation in Hollywood, Florida. She's a former Miss Florida Seminole and the first Seminole woman to hold the title of Miss Indian World. Founded in 1983, Miss Indian World is a five-day competition held in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the annual Gathering of Nations, the largest Native American powwow in the world. I recently talked with Cheyenne Kippenberger about her time as Miss Indian World and her role as a cultural goodwill ambassador and advocate for her tribe. It's funny when people ask me about pageantry because they ask, you know, is it something you've always been into? You know, did you do that as a little girl? And the complete and honest answer is that I was never involved in pageantry. It actually wasn't something that I ever saw myself getting into. I was with my sister this one night. We were hanging out in my living room and we were just joking around. And we were talking about how our grandma always had pushed us to run in the pageant. And so my older sister did it, my oldest, but none of the last three had done it. And I was like, you know, it'd be so funny, Chaff. I was like, what if I ran for Miss Seminole, you know? And it legitimately started as a joke, but then it started, I guess I planned to see that night because I started thinking about like, what could be the most uncomfortable and like out of box thing for me to do? And ding, 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 why don't you run in a pageant? And so... I did. I threw myself into preparation for it. And I ended up having a beautiful experience running for Miss Florida Seminole in 2018 and ended up getting crowned probably nine months into my Miss Florida Seminole reign. I was thinking to myself, how cool would it be to be able to tell like my daughters or my granddaughters, I ran in the Miss Indian World pageant. I wasn't even concerned with winning. I was just thinking it's so cool to run in a pageant like that. It literally is the equivalent of like Miss Universe for mainstream pageantry. It's the biggest pageant you can do in Indian country. And so 
again, I threw myself into prep and, and I, I put a lot of time and energy into preparing for Miss Indian World. And I just started practicing everything. And my sister and I got together and we started creating all my dresses. And by the time I arrived in Albuquerque, you know, I was so ready to compete. I was just pumped. Miss Indian World selects winners who demonstrate a deep knowledge of their culture, traditions, people, and history. I remember the moments leading into crowning, we're all standing like in a huge circle on the arena floor at the Coliseum of the powwow. And so they announced all the awards, they announced second runner-up, first runner-up, and they hadn't said my name up to that point. And <laughs> I'm like, holy, I think I have a shot at this. Like, I think I really do. And they're talking about the points and he's like, our new Miss Indian world comes to us representing. And before he even finished the entire word, I just heard Sem and I just, just started crying. I can't even explain what the emotions are in that moment. I was crying tears of joy. You know, everybody in the arena is screaming, but I can like specifically hear my family behind me. And it still gives me chills. It still brings my entire family to tears. I was so incredibly proud to bring that home to my people for the first time. And once my year started going, it didn't stop. I kind of like hit the ground running, but you know, I traveled everywhere. I even got to go to New Zealand and visit with the Maori people. It was an incredible journey of connecting, educating, learning, putting yourself out there to represent your people, you know? So sometimes you're having to educate people just on the fact that, you know, we're modern living people that don't live in teepees, you know, um, or that we all have different languages. Um, we have different teachings, different stories, different regalias. And so, you know, I tried to talk about what our identity as Native people really means outside of like a Western colonial lens was something I really tried to challenge. Cheyenne Kippenberger was crowned as Miss Indian World in 2019. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the Gathering of Nations Miss Indian World Program offered to extend the title to Cheyenne Kippenberger for another year, and she accepted. To commemorate her reign as Miss Indian World, Cheyenne Kippenberger wanted to do something unique, so she had her photograph taken by Shane Balkowicz, a wet plate photographer from Bismarck, North Dakota. Wet plate photography was first developed by Frederick Scott Archer in 1851. In recent years, there's been a small revival of the wet plate process. A wet plate photograph is made by placing a film base on a piece of glass or metal, using collodion, and submerging it in a silver nitrate solution to make it light sensitive. One of Shane Balkowicz's goals as an artist is to capture photographs of a thousand Native Americans for an Ambrotype series. In 2021, Cheyenne Kippenberger became one of the 1,000 Native Americans featured in the series. I came across his page this one day and I was like, dang, this is so cool. And that was when I went to his website and I read about the process of wet plate photos. And I was blown away by it because, you know, I come from a family of all different types of artists and I have uncles that have been in photography my entire life. And so I just really appreciated the art and the time and the process behind it. In my mind, I'm thinking this would be so neat to do, you know, even just as an individual, but it would be even cooler to be able to bring this Indian world to that. And so when I just so happened to get the extension in my reign because of COVID, I told him, hey, I really want to come. I really want to do some photos as Miss Indian world. Are you up for it? And 
he was so, so sweet and understanding. He said, if you're willing to make the journey out here from Florida, he's like, I will squeeze you in when you can make it. I literally called my dad. I'm like, hey, you want to go to North Dakota with me? So we, we went on a, like a random win. I packed up my Miss New World stuff, packed my favorite dresses. Shane is just this really, really kind and thoughtful person. You can just see that he genuinely cares about, you know, sharing our people, Native people, and really being able to share our stories through these photos. I just love the patience and understanding that he had and him just sitting there allowing us to share about our people and, you know, coming from the South and our history of being the unconquered Seminole tribe of Florida and I'm so proud of how those photos came out. And I was so proud of even how my father's photo came out as well. Cheyenne Kippenberger knew she wanted to wear something special in her wet plate session with Shane Balkowicz. So she brought her favorite colorful traditional Seminole dress. As a young Seminole woman, I take so much pride in my clothing. And that stems from the fact that my family makes all of my clothing. My sister is... The seamstress, she makes everybody's like full traditional outfit. She makes their modern stuff. And so I always wear my things proudly because I know the time, the energy, the love and the thought that goes into our clothing. And that's one of our teachings, you know, is everything that we create, just in general as Native people, there's an understanding that the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts that you have in the moments that you're creating those things, whether it's clothing, beadwork, you know, moccasins, whatever it is, artwork those all of those things get put into the thing you're creating so you know our clothing is medicine our moccasins are medicine our beadwork is medicine because it's almost ceremony creating these things and so I take so much pride in the things that I wear but that dress specifically is my absolute favorite traditional dress that I have and it was actually made for when I ran in Miss Seminole back in 2018 And I remember telling my sister, I want a dress with fire colors because that's what my my Indian name translates to in English is fire. And I remember we're walking around Joanne's together and I was like, dang, this forest green is really pretty. Do you think that we could put the fire colors on that and it would and it would look good? My sister has a great eye for that. And so she's like, yeah, we can make it work. Let's do it. And she ended up just creating this beautiful traditional dress for me and since 2018 it's been my favorite dress I've probably worn it like 600 times it's been through mud it's been through rain powwows schools conferences you name it but that dress just it carries something really really special and um, you know I love my sister for the fact that she's always adorned me in the most beautiful clothing and so bringing it wasn't even a second guess when I was packing for Bismarck North Dakota. For one of her wet plate photographs, Cheyenne Kippenberger wore her hair in a traditional way, elaborately shaped into a fan-like style that her grandmother taught her. The hairstyle, it was actually derived and kind of inspired by when um, the settler women started coming in. They had their big bonnet hats. They were, yeah, really inspired by those. And, you know, our women... Not only are we very, very resourceful and um, we're fashionistas, as I like to call it, our women, we have this thing where we just, we always look good, our, our stuff matches, you know what I mean? And so we started creating these headpieces. I made mine out of cardboard and this was actually what I presented for Miss Indian World for my traditional talent on stage. 
but it was so neat because even though it was derived from just these hats that they saw, it ended up being something that was really useful for us being from the Everglades in Florida. And we were able to kind of tilt them a little bit forward and it could serve as a visor, but it was really about fashion. You know, we started decorating them and adorning them with dimes, which is something that we use traditionally in our jewelry. Um, we would be the edge of it or we, you know, it would get fancy. And like, I always loved it because as a little girl, I saw my great grandma, Mary Tiger, wear that. In a way it was to honor her and, you know, to present this really, really unique aspect of seminal fashion. And the photo came out so beautiful. As soon as we finished it, I knew it was going to be my favorite one. I don't even think we had finished taking the other ones, but I knew it was going to be my favorite because I feel so beautiful in that picture. It really embodied like the beauty, the fashion, the appreciation, the honoring of my great grandmother, but also it was a way to honor like all of our women from back then that had just created this hairstyle from, you know, seeing women come into our lands and you know we're going to make our own version of that and we still we still as seminal women embody that same attitude today and so it was an honoring for just all the women really I look at that photo now and it just not only does it hold such great memories but you know I look at it and it literally makes me smile and it makes me feel really really proud. Through her various platforms, Cheyenne Kippenberger continues to bring awareness to the strength and resilience of her people, the Seminole Tribe of Florida. You know, if there's anything that I'd like for our listeners, you know, to hear from me is that you may not have heard Seminole or Miccosukee history or really know anything about our people, and that's all right. But now that it is on your radar, you all have an obligation and a responsibility to go and seek out and to learn those things. And I hope you all know that no matter where you go in the world, whether you're in Florida, Massachusetts, New Zealand, no matter where you go, you know, there's indigenous and native people that have inhabited those lands that are still here today, that are fighting for their rights, they're fighting for recognition. And I hope that you may be hearing some of these things will help you question what your allyship can look like. And I encourage you to just explore the history that is our people and know that we are modern, living, thriving people. Photographer Shane Balkowicz recently donated wet plate number 3825 from Cheyenne Kippenberger's Ambrotype session to the Florida Historical Society's Library of Florida History in Cocoa. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Come on, let's go to that land where the milk and honey flow. Come on, come on, come on, come on, let's go to a better place.
Grace and Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, today we'll be talking about the Florida Negro Farm Cooperative Extension Service. Yes, one of the most difficult areas for research is also an area with the most information. Agricultural history is the foundation of American history. After all, most Americans were farmers until the late 19th century. The United States was not statistically an urban society until 1920 when the federal census revealed that most of the U.S. population lived in towns and cities of at least 2,500 people. Of course, many of those towns were county seats and farm marketing towns. The South was not considered urban until after World War II, and Mississippi is still not an urban state. That strong agrarian past means that there are archives filled with information about farming, crops, agricultural markets, farm tools and machines, pesticides, herbicides, and biological innovations. The information that is more difficult to uncover is the social history of farming, the lives of individual farmers and farm families. Significant planters often have collections of papers, but ordinary farmers, particularly black farmers, are less likely to be represented in the archives. There is, however, a rich source of social history in an unlikely and therefore overlooked place. And, Connie, these are government reports by agricultural researchers, right? Yes. In 1914, Congress enacted the Smith-Lever Act, which created the Agricultural Cooperative Extension Service, a partnership between the USDA, land-grant universities, and county governments to place a farm extension agent in every rural county. These agents acted as the intermediary between farmers and agricultural researchers. They brought scientific agriculture to ordinary farmers in their county. They created test fields, held farm institutes, advised farmers on planting and marketing, and generally modernized agriculture. In 1917, Congress expanded the Extension Service to include home extension agents and the Negro Agricultural Extension Service and Home Extension Service. Not every county in Florida had a black agent. They were concentrated in the Panhandle and in the area from the border with Georgia down to Marion County. Every year, every county extension agent submitted a narrative report to the state agent at the land-grant university. The state agent compiled the information from the county reports and submitted his report to the USDA. Those county narrative reports, which are housed in the archives of land-grant universities, provide a wealth of social history about individual farmers, both black and white. And Connie, you found these reports useful in your own research, right? Yes, I encountered Florida's extension narratives when I was working on an essay about black farmers in the civil rights era. The essay, titled Planting the Seeds of Racial Equality, Florida's Independent Black Farmers and the Modern Civil Rights Era, appeared in Old South, New South, or Down South, Florida and the Modern Civil Rights Movement, edited by Irvin D.S. Winsboro in 2009. Given the nature of the topic, I focused on extension reports from 1945 to 1965. The personal stories told by the black extension agents were uplifting, 
a not unexpected finding since they were reporting to a white state agent. That said, it is clear that the agents saw their work as preparing rural blacks for a new day. The report offered several insights into black rural life. First, they revealed the presence of a small core of substantial black-owned farms in each county. These farms ranged in size from 100 to 400 acres. Second, the reports revealed the social networks of churches and schools as glue that sustained rural life in a manner familiar to those who have studied the urban civil rights movement. And third, the language of the report suggests that the agents recognized that their work, particularly the programs that taught organization and public speaking, and those that focused on farm children, were preparing the black communities for a future in which they would play a greater role in the affairs of the county and state. However, the agents were careful in their reports of these activities, perhaps concerned that whites would make the connections between the training blacks received in extension programs and the emerging civil rights movement. What else did you learn about the farmers who were reported on? As was true for white farmers, black farmers with the largest and best capitalized farms were the most enthusiastic consumers of extension programs. They experimented with new techniques, tried new crop mixes, and bought modern farm machinery. The extension agents were justly proud of the results, and they photographed these farms and families. The images show substantial farmhouses, automobiles in the drive, family members in the field, and farm equipment. They present a rare glimpse into the life of successful black farmers. Those same farmers appeared in the reports for other reasons as well. They provided the social support for uplift. Both farm and home extension agents served as rural social workers. They provided information on relief programs, vouched for credit worthiness, and promoted health and sanitation initiatives. Tuberculosis was an endemic disease in the rural South, and county agents supported campaigns for testing for TB. As part of the small group of college-educated blacks in rural counties, they also served as role models for aspiring black youths. They depended on substantial black farmers to assist in their agricultural and social work. These farmers were likely to attend short courses and institutes held at FAMU and could help disseminate farm information. They were the deacons and Sunday school superintendents in the rural churches and could identify those families with particular needs. They were the volunteers who met with boys' corn clubs and 4-H clubs to teach the next generation best farm practices, planning techniques, and public speaking. Finally, in collaboration with black legal and medical professionals and black entrepreneurs, they supported the construction of Rosenwald schools and the funding of scholarships for black students heading to college. In these and other activities, they prepared their communities for a new day. These reports sound like a fascinating research tool. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. There will be a better place I know when I get home. This is Florida Frontiers. 
seven decades after being falsely accused and convicted of raping a white woman, the young black men known as the Groveland Four were finally exonerated on November 22, 2021. Ernest Thomas, who was killed by a posse in 1949 before he could be charged, along with Walter Irvin, Samuel Shepard, and Charles Greenlee, are all deceased. Still, their names are now cleared. Gilbert King is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the book Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America. Yeah, the Groveland case started in Lake County in 1949. It was um, a young woman and her husband, who she was separated from at the time, uh, went out on a date to try to get their marriage back together, and uh, something happened alongside of the road. The next thing we know, she made the claim that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans. Um, this brought the Klan in, started burning down African-American homes. It became a powder keg. Um, a really big trial happened like a little bit more than a month later, involved Thurgood Marshall. So this became a very big civil rights case focused in Central Florida at the time. The notoriously racist Sheriff Willis McCall and his followers killed Ernest Thomas and tortured the remaining suspects. Journalist Mabel Norris Reese, originally a supporter of Sheriff McCall, wrote unfavorably about the Groveland case. Gilbert King. You know, it's interesting because she came down here, I think she wanted to buy into the community, reporting on a lot of community news, Little League scores, um, Northerners who were coming back down to Mount Dora. And I think she was friends with the prosecutor, Jesse Hunter, and, and helped her get into the world of Sheriff Willis McCall. And I think she was a little bit naive and, and sort of thought that racially that this was an idyllic place when it clearly was not. And I think the turning point for her, because she covered the first trial, was the shooting of the Groveland boys in 1951 as they were waiting for the second trial. The prosecutor, Jesse Hunter, at that point said, I don't think that that was an escape attempt. I think it was deliberate. Mabel had a lot of communications and that was really her turning point. And I noticed if you look at her career, from that moment on, and it was like November 1951, she was all about justice. And justice didn't sell in a small town newspaper. That's not what people really wanted to hear about white supremacy. And, and so you could see as she got her courage and as she found her, her sort of inspiration about the things to write about, the things that really interested her, she's also facing the backlash in her own community. And I thought that was a really powerful thing that just, she just continued to do it, knowing that it was gonna hurt her pocketbook, as she said. Educator and civil rights activist Harry T. Moore was another supporter of the Groveland Four. Some believe his actions in the case resulted in the assassination of Moore and his wife Harriet. Ben Green is author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. The day of a hearing for the new trial, Willis McCall and his deputy went to Rayford to pick him up. On the way back to Lake County, claimed that the two prisoners jumped him and attacked him, and he shot him. He emptied his revolver into him. He killed Sam Shepard, uh, mortally, seriously, critically wounded Walter Irvin, who did survive, and told a completely different story, which is that McCall just yanked him out and started shooting. At that point, Harry T. Moore started calling for McCall to be removed from office, indicted for murder, uh, he's telegramming and writing letters to the governor, to the U.S. attorney, to Thurgood Marshall, to the FBI. And then just six weeks later, he was blown up in his house. So the morning after the bombing in 
Mims, people immediately connected the Groveland case to the Moore bombing. And when the FBI agents and the local deputies worked their way through the crowd that had gathered and said, why would anyone have wanted to kill Harry Moore? Everybody immediately said Groveland. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pardoned the Groveland Four in 2019, but that proclamation still implied guilt. State Attorney Bill Gladson led the effort that finally resulted in the Groveland Four being exonerated for a crime they did not commit in 1949. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.